Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I'm your host, Don Quixote, and this is my guest, Don Quixote. Don Quixote. <laughs> Which of us is the real Don Quixote? You won't know, we look identical. It's just that yep. one of us was written by Cervantes, and one of us was written by Ivanita. <laughs> Yep, sounds close enough. <laughs> what what is the correct pronunciation? A bayoneta. Oh, you know it, which means you're the false one and I'm the true one. Whoa, you laid Boom. a trap for yeah, me. Yeah, I did. Uh, and you fell in it, and the gentle listener just shot you in the head. Yep, it's true. Except the trick was neither of us is really Don Quixote. Wait, what? <laughs> Tricked you. <laughs> That should be that should be the slogan of our podcast. <laughs> Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch colon tricked you, <laughs> which is great because the thing I was gonna say before you even said that was that what you said was the word trick and then a space and then like T Y U tricked you, tricked you. <laughs> yep. Oh my gosh! Well, gentle listener, as you surely guessed by now, we are. A podcast where we're going to discuss the book Don Quixote. I thought we were discussing the book Ethan Bartlett by Don Quixote, as written by Michael Lilienthal, a.k.a. Yeah. Miguel de Cervantes. All right, gentle listener, new plan, <laughs> update. Um, I'm going to defenestrate Michael, and then this is just going to be a podcast called Ethan Drinking Scotch and Talking About Don Quixote Without Michael Saying Super Irrelevant Things. <laughs> Um, I never say anything that's irrelevant. It's going to be either even longer of an acronym, but we'll deal with that. Uh, nice. Anyway, so as you've surely also guessed by now, while discussing Don Quixote, we are drinking the Balvini. Yep. 14-year-old Caribbean cask, extra matured in rum casks. This is a single malt scotch whiskey, which has been then also matured in rum casks but it is still scotch which i yep. admit is as confusing as following any single plot line in don quixote but we've endured the first so we're going to endure the second sure uh, yeah so hey karen you want to read the read the thing <laughs> karen what are the rules Rule one, once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two, no one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three, Ethan must never say the phrase first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four, Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five, if anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle listener. listener. Thank you, Karen. 
and you don't have to look at me like that for how lethargic I was. Um, I don't know. Was <laughs> Anne? Yeah. Merci. Uh. Oh, we have already. No, we haven't clinked the glasses yet. So two merci. Um. Uh. Je t'aime la mère du Michael. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I went there. Jossie. May we? Je forgot the word for kill you. <laughs> it's just one word. <laughs> yeah. It is kill you. Yeah. <laughs> Which would definitely be the correct grammar and everything. Yep. Um, kill you. <laughs> All right, before we get any farther down this rabbit hole, yeah. let's uh, do the thing. What's that thing? I can't remember it. Is it clink the glasses? Yeah, no, that. <laughs> I can't remember what I was trying to say. Is it schlank? <laughs> schlank. I guess. I guess. combination of sounds? I guess. Don't I guess? I I said exact I said a question that either you have to say yes exactly or no. Yes. <laughs> you have said schlank on this podcast before. No. I said I guess instead of guess before. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, that I I'm sure you have. Uh-huh. I don't even remember it and I do believe that. I yep. just was pretty sure from the way that Schlank destroyed me that you had never said that before. <laughs> no, that one's new. Okay. Good. So, Don Quixote. <laughs> yep. So, this uh, book that we've been reading for the past seven months of our lives. Oh my gosh, it's so long. It's such a long <laughs> book you did to us. I didn't do it. You did it. Uh, so, we were talking last episode um, a lot about how in part two, even more so than in part one, the sort of line between truth and fiction gets blurred. Yes. Um, and of course, if you step all the way back like a jerk and just view this book from the outside as a book, yes, it is all fiction. Uh-huh. Um, but then there's... Did you just call me a jerk? Yeah, I did. Okay. Um, I was... Hmm. <laughs> I was about to say I was hoping you wouldn't catch it, but... I think I was also hoping you would catch it. Yeah, you were. So I guess I was hope really what I was hoping was that it would be a sort of time bomb. Oh. That you would catch in like seven hours. Oh, okay. Like that you would wake up. And it up. would wake me up. And I'd yeah. Like, you just call me a jerk. Well, except not just because it was seven hours ago, but whatever. Yeah, but there's no conception of time. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, full stop. <laughs> You you have just asserted that no conception of time exists. <laughs> like you didn't specify it to being for us or for you or in this pot. You just said no conception of time is. <laughs> Your problem is no nothing. I'm just making sure that no, you... that was a statement. Your problem is. <laughs> well, yeah, you are sitting right here. 
Boom. Oh. Boom. Boom goes the cannon. Uh, anyway. anyway. Instead of reciting all of Hamilton, I'm going to say the thing that I was about to say. My sister-in-law saw Hamilton just the other day. Oh, yeah? Where? At the uh, Orpheum in St. Paul. Ah, nice. Yep. How, uh, how, jerk. how many hundred dollars did she pay for tickets? A bunch? I don't know. What she like paid eleven, eleven hundred dollars, eleven thousand, yeah, of a million. Wouldn't surprise me. Uh, anyway, where are we? We were discussing this book. This book um, called Don Quixote. So, and we de la Mancha. We started by Miguel. Well, de if you're really being that completist, it's the Adventures of the Genius Hidalgo Don Quixote de la Mancha. Thank you. I appreciate your thoroughness. I am sure you do. So, we uh, we talked last episode in the context of uh, the line between sort of what is fiction and what is truth being very much blurred. Yep. Um, both as far as, like, the narrative itself and also the characters within the narrative sort of building fictions on what each other believes to be truth. Yeah. Because um, there are a series of things that, like, Don Quixote thinks are true that Sancho Panza knows are false. There are a series of things that Don Quixote and Sancho Panza think are true that the Duke and Duchess know are false. Right. Um, there also seem confusingly to be things that Sancho Panza thinks is tr are true that Don Quixote knows or thinks are false. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, so there's all that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, now, related both to this theme and to the Cave of Montesinos, I would like to direct our attention to uh, Volume 2, Chapter 62, mm. um, which is a pretty long chapter, um, but it has to do with the adventure of the Enchanted Bust, um, or in a, a sort of the terms that you initiated us into in the very first episode, the episode of the sitcom where they talk to the talking statue, mm -hmm. right? Um, so this, of course, is a is a situation that Don Quixote and Sancho Panza end up in, where um, he's he's just is he like one of the Duke and Duchess's friends, something like that? No, I don't think he's connected. Oh no, he's just yeah. He's just a wealthy, intelligent gentleman, fond of good, whole, fond of good, wholesome entertainment, which, <laughs> which is just delightful, right? Oh. Especially in a book that, as we've discussed, is maybe having a go at the oppressive uh, Counter Reformation Spanish Inquisition Yo. government, um, oh, which so then we'll good. get into in the same chapter. Him initiating a thing that could easily be read as like saying or um, mm -hmm. uh, wizardry yep. stuff what the Reformation is pretty solidly against, right? Yep. Um, so this this uh, this young man, he hosts Don Quixote and Sancho Panza um, graciously, it is said. Uh, but in his in his house, he has an enchanted bust, and the story goes that. He, um, this bust is magically enchanted and will, like, tell you stuff, predict the future, um, you can ask it questions. And, of course, when they do go into the room with this bust, and there's some real suspicious things that are pretty explicitly laid out about, like, 
the door has to be closed and it has to be at a certain time and um, various other things. This uh, this bus goes ahead and, and um, talks to you and answers your questions. Now, mm -hmm. one thing I do want to point out specifically, and I'm just like, I don't know how to give you markers on this. I'm just like... No, that's fine. Sort of right in the middle of the chapter. Um, but... Uh, Don Quixote asks the K or the bust rather, um, was what I describe as having happened in the cave of Montesinos the truth or a dream? Um, and then he asks a couple other questions, but the bust says about the cave, there is much to be said. There is a little of both in it, as in a little of both truth and a dream. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is how the bust answers all the questions. He just sort of equivocates yeah equivocates and like almost just parrots back all of the information that you had given him in the question yep um so but once again with the cave of montesinos it goes it it gets away from him a little bit it like it almost feels more like cervantes talking to the reader or someone talking to the reader maybe a character in the mm -hmm. book excuse me you know what i mean because it really just uh, um, sort of says what you suspect already. Like, even when I asked you about what you thought of the cave the last episode, it was almost like that. It's like, yeah. there's a little bit of truth, there's a little bit of dream. Um, you know, Don Quixote is known to elaborate on things for himself. Yep. But also, like, even this answer doesn't allow for it to just be a complete fabrication which right. is what nabokov dismisses it as by the way i don't know if you remember that bit yeah but nabokov just basically says nah that's just more of he don quixote's yep. bs which yep. is not an unfair interpretation no absolutely it's fine um <laughs> i think there's more to it though that like even yeah. if it's to the point where someone else like the duke or duchess took him to the cave right and invented this whole thing for him that didn't wind up getting written down which is right. kind of like one of those things because at the beginning of this whole thing the uh whoever whoever this guy is um who's scamming him yeah uh basically swears him to silence and don quixote right. is like yeah i swear i'm never going to tell anybody about what happens and then you have to think the way this is all framed, someone heard about this and wrote it someone down. Someone had to have told somebody. Right. And whoever told had to have been sworn to secrecy. Exactly. Have to assume. So, like, that that also, like, leaves, within the frame of this whole story, leaves the opening that someone, somewhere along the lines, was involved and didn't tell. Right. Um, and actually, as we're talking about this, this actually sort of reminds me of a passage that... I think we focused on a little bit at in the last the previous episode where towards the beginning in the first few chapters of volume two uh cervantes sort of addresses the whole false don quixote thing but also some of some of his critics and you know calls all of his readers idiots but says mm -hmm. that because there are innumerable idiots there are plenty of people who love this book right um in the most like most like double backhanded insult slash compliment mm -hmm. um possible but so and it's actually the bit i'm thinking of is um right after cervantes says since stultorum 
infinitus as numerous, innumerable are those who have relished this history. He then says, some have found fault with the author's memory and accused him of deception because he forgets to tell us who was the thief that stole Sancho's dun. The incident isn't narrated, and we just have to infer that somebody has stolen it. And a little later, we find Sancho riding the very same donkey without having recovered it. Um, now, that's an interesting just like address to the reader and to the critics. Um, and basically is Cervantes just being like, yeah, you, you guys read this first volume way closer than I did and cared way more. <laughs> Which is an interesting dynamic that you can see in a lot of authors of extremely popular works now sure like again i know i brought up jk rowling as an example in a previous episode but like there are some things that jk rowling gets sort of asked about on twitter um or even mm -hmm. even that she did i want to say during like well harry potter was still an ongoing thing like there's one oh i forget there's like one uh character in one of the Harry Potter books, like a super side character who's named like Jack or something fairly common. And then there's another character that has the same name who shows up in like the fifth book. And it's just like a friend of Dudley Dursley or some, some marginal thing like that. Mm -hmm. um, but then when it was announced that the sixth book was called The Half-Blood Prince, like some fans like doing super deep close readings um, came up with this theory that this like super marginal character named in like two lines of this book was gonna be the half-blood prince mm -hmm. and it was because jk rowling had named this these two different characters the same thing mm -hmm. and she had to come on i don't know if twitter existed at the time but she had to go on the internet and be like no sorry guys that's a complete red herring i forgot that i had named this person this and it's just a name i like mm -hmm. you know what i mean and it's, it's a similar thing here with with Cervantes, I think, being like, yeah, I forgot that I got Sancho's donkey stolen and then I needed him to have the donkey later, or I didn't care, I just gave the donkey back to yep. him. <laughs> but It's, it's kind of to the point, which, like, maybe this isn't the most favorite thing for, for readers, but, like, the author almost has to take it to the point of, guys, it's a book! <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I feel like... I feel like that's oh, it's reminding me of the movie Galaxy Quest, where yes. Tim Allen's character yes. has to be like, it's a TV show. And of course, then the person that he says that to ends up saving the universe when it turns out to literally not be just a TV show. Right. But <laughs> at the same time, right. it's a movie. It's a movie. <laughs> um, yes. But anyway, um, what are, the, the thing, the brainwave that I had... Um, is when when Cervantes, in the text of the book, in a chapter, chapter 3 of volume 2, the incident isn't narrated and we just have to infer that somebody has stolen it. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's almost San er, Sancho, uh, Cervantes, you know, addressing the reader and being like, maybe you can help me out here. Which makes me wonder with your, with what you were just saying about the Cave of Montesinos. Like, only Don Quixote is narrated as having been through that cave, mm -hmm. but it almost now makes you wonder if Cervantes is like setting up a, mm. you know, an expectation that like maybe there's more going on than anyone actually narrates here because mm -hmm. Ben and Galley forgot to put a thing in or didn't 
do all of the research that he could right. or something like that. Yeah. So that amuses me deeply. Yeah. No, it's 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 good. Um, maybe connected to that too, and this whole idea of like, well, just the idea of what's real and what's true, and you need all the information and and all of that. Yeah. Um, is connected here. There's there's a passage in part two, which feels like it's such a long time coming. Yeah. But it's also just great. It's right in the middle of part two in chapter thirty-one. Um, right near the end of the first paragraph in, in my translation. Um, and it says, uh, Don Quixote now for the first time, and I want to emphasize that, Don Quixote for the first time was sure and satisfied of his being a real and not a fantastic knight errant because he saw himself treated as the knights of former ages whose histories he had read. And that's while he's with the Duke and Duchess. Yeah. yeah the servants yeah. come in and, and like pamper him or, or whatever. Um, or no, he, he enters into the courtyard and they, they put a, a mantle around you his shoulders and stuff. 31. Chapter 31. Okay. Yep. Uh, so yeah, he says, Don Quixote now for the first time yeah. was sure and satisfied of his being a real knight errant. Not a fantastic knight okay. errant. Because he saw himself treated as the knights of former ages whose histories he had read. Yeah, um, and I just found that sentence in my translation. Sure. And it's it's pretty close, though the language is mm -hmm. a little modernized. That was the first day when he was fully convinced that he was a real knight-errant, not a fantasy one, seeing himself treated in the same way as he'd read that such knights used to be treated in centuries past. So right, pretty which similar. implies that for the entirety of part one, yeah. he had this little inkling in the back of his mind at the very least that, like, I'm just making all this up. Right. And all the way up for the first 30 chapters of part two, I'm and just making this up. And 80 chapters or whatever of part one. Yeah, exactly. This is, this is fully, like, three quarters of the way through this book about yep. someone utterly convinced that he's a knight errand right before he's convinced that he's a knight errand exactly yeah that's yeah. fascinating right and then which which kind of seems to hint also at the end that now things are breaking down too that like we're convinced that he's convinced up until this point right and then all of a sudden now we doubt that he's convinced right which and, is fascinating. And then it, it leads to the very end when he decides he's not convinced that he's right. a knight anymore. And he's right. convinced, in fact, of the exact opposite. Right. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, and I want to come back to that passage sure. on a different sort of theme. But I want to return to this um, this this talking bust, right? Sure. Um, because within the same chapter, we do get for maybe really the only or at least the most direct time we get sort of the curtain pulled back on what the illusion is because there is a long passage slightly later in the chapter than I was quoting before where it's talked about what this is there's someone hiding in the yep. basement there's a valve that comes up yep. and it says um, excuse me the answerer was a nephew of Don Antonio's who the, the, owns the house or whatever a sharp-witted intelligent student and since his uncle had told him who would be going into the room with him that day, it was easier for him to give a quick and precise answer to the first question, and he improvised answers to the others, and being intelligent, did so intelligently. Um, <laughs> which is interesting, uh, because this is how, this is hot and cold readings. This is how a lot of, like, supposed psychics and mediums uh -huh. do their thing. Yep. 
um and um you know there's a there's a lot of research that and and research and also like extrapolation that i um don't have the time or intelligence to cite but basically <laughs> um a lot of psychics when they when they're in a room full of people you know they'll do what's called a cold reading where they'll just pull stuff out of their butt and see what matches so it's yep. like oh i'm getting the letter h from you and the color green and you're like oh well my grandfather was a green bay packer and his name was henry mm -hmm. right um and then i sort of you know i can sort of extrapolate from there but some psychics also will do what's called a hot reading yep where if they can get your name first they'll google you quick and like i don't know if you guys are aware of this and including you michael google tells you a lot of stuff about people mm -hmm. even like fairly normal people if you google them you can find out a lot of stuff yep and so you know a psychic can just come in and if they're good at extrapolation at all mm -hmm. it can almost you know be eerie what they can come up with let alone if they're just doing the surface level of a google search you know, right and and just sort of coming up with stuff that way but like you know this is this is 400 years ago the exact same tricks yep. um and it's it's interesting because cervantes just sort of laying out how certain types of like con artistry and like mm -hmm. artificial creation of reality work mm -hmm. um and this the statute like there are you know in ancient like accounts of mystery cults and so like soothsayers and other like you know magicians and stuff like making statues talk or move mm -hmm. is like a big trick like even going back to you know some of the creepier passages out of like ancient roman writers mm -hmm. um so it's interesting that cervantes chose this one to just like sort of lay out there mm -hmm. yeah it no it is it is absolutely interesting because it's it's someone who's crafting this very convincing fiction, but at the same time, Cervantes provides the device behind the fiction. Yeah, yeah. And tells you exactly how the people are being hoodwinked. Whereas he doesn't do that in a bunch of other passages. Yes. But it gives you sort of easy narrative or rhetorical room to infer similar things. For, yes, everything else. Yeah. Yep, yep just uh, it 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 makes it so easy and open to the interpretation that everything is completely faked yeah including the cave of montesinos yeah that it's absolutely faked right though again even the cave of montesinos like that's the hardest one to dismiss yes. you'd almost have to take this passage go back to it and read it real carefully into mm -hmm. the cave of montesinos yep um which i now kind of want to do but do it Okay, I'll stop right now. Stop right now. It's going to be 10 minutes of this podcast that are just dead silent <laughs> because it's the sound of me reading. No, I'm not going to do that to any of us. No. Including myself. Please um, don't do that. <laughs> are you really just like telling me what I want to hear right now? I would never do are that. You a, are you just a talking bust um, operated by the nephew of whoever owns this building? Or by my wife. By your wife. Mm -hmm. Who's four hours away. Yep. From here. Yep, quite a trick, isn't it? It's quite a quite a valve she's operating. I know. Name of your sex Don't talk tape. about my wife's valves. <laughs> Name of your sex <laughs> tape. <laughs> uh, yeah. You can delete that if you want, but you probably <laughs> won't. I'm sure it's too much work. Um, yeah, it's it's that's too difficult. <laughs> um, the delete button. Yeah. Uh. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. So, 
Was there anything else you wanted to say on that particular no. note? Uh, something I was uh, wanting to get at before we end our time here. Yeah. Um, and I, I am going to ask you this question second because I'm a selfish ass. But um, 14. was just the question of why is this a great novel? Oh. Like, why is this one of the novels that stands alongside of, like, Hamlet mm-hmm. and Oedipus Rex and, like, very few other actual works as, like, one of the great works that echoes down the ages? And I want to suggest first that it does have to do with something we touched on maybe two episodes ago um, as the idea of inwardness. Sure. Um, Because up until this point in literature, um, and again, Harold Bloom credits Shakespeare as being the first one to talk about inwardness in a work of fiction. Um, Questionable, and also, even if he's right, like Cervantes probably discovers it sort of at the same time. Right. um, And not necessarily with influence going one way Mm -hmm. or the other, just sort of like Leibniz and... That Leibniz and Newton who invented calculus basically simultaneously. Mm, sounds right. I want to, yeah. Anyway, um, that's as close to uh, math and science history as I'm going to be qualified to get. And this uh, has been Math and Science History Corner with Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, that's the sound of me diving out of this corner as rapidly <laughs> as possible. Um, so... And there are several passages, and I marked some of them, and then I haven't been able to find any of them. And then you quoted this passage just now, yep. and it's one of them that I didn't mark, but it does work. Yeah. Um, is the passage you just quoted where, you know, um, again, beginning of chapter 31 of volume 2, they're decorating Don Quixote. And then they produced flasks and sprinkled scented waters over Don Quixote and the Duke and Duchess, and Don Quixote was amazed by what was happening. Now, up until that sentence, and if you even if you went back to the beginning of the chapter and read through to that sentence, um, it would be pretty typical of dramatic works and, and novelistic type works, you know, narrative, prose narrative type works, up until this point in, in literary history. Um, in that it would be sort of an external, like, character driven um potentially almost abstract thing going on right it's Mm -hmm. something a set of things a keen observer could see from outside Mm -hmm. because you could even see oh he was amazed oh look at the look on his face he's clearly amazed amazed right but then you get to and that was the first day when he was fully convinced that he was a real knight errant not a fantasy one seeing himself treated in the same way as he'd read that such knights used to be treated in centuries past and again, there are several other passages like this, and if we ever did any prep work at all for this entire podcast ever, <laughs> there, uh, I, I would be able to point you at several others. But, as it is, this is, this is going to stand as our synecdoche. Um, Perfect. That, uh, lay out what Don Quixote is thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I think this is relatively new in the history of prose narratives that you get at something that's inward um, mm. that's that's truly like something the author can report from being completely inside of this this character this uh um oh what was the Kundera phrase this like 
alternative self or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, the, um, go, what was it? Um, artificial something selves or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, We're doing real good. Real yep, good at, yep. at good thinking work, of us. <laughs> very excellent. We're very good. Way to go. We're fantastic. Oh, I got it real fast before, too, and now yep. I'm looking at it. Is it at the bottom of the three there? Was it? Imaginary yep. self. Imaginary self. Yeah, okay, so go ahead and delete the last, like, 75 seconds. That's too much work. And just have us come up with it immediately, like, smart people. Yeah, I don't want to put in the effort to yeah, make well, us sound smart. I just thought I'd give that suggestion, but yeah. This <laughs> is this is maybe, like, the first time, and again, maybe maybe there's other examples that people could cite um, sure. earlier, but this is definitely one of the first times in literary history where we have this idea of an imaginary self that only Cervantes and Don Quixote himself could have reported this information. Sure. Um, and I want to give a second example of that from Pavel. Ooh. And I did mark this. This is, again, a book I've cited several times so far. I don't know if I've done it in this particular episode, but Thomas Pavel... Uh, the Lives of the Novel, a history. So it's a history of the novel, of the development of the form. Um, fascinating, fascinating book if, like, any of this uh, kind of thing that we're talking about sort of interests you. Um, but specifically Pavel, and it, this was interesting to me, he's talking about the, the like, embedded novella within the greater narrative mm. of part one, um, the uh, what is it? The case of the inappropriate curiosity, mm -hmm. or an ill-advised curiosity. Pavel has it. Um, he cites Don Quixote, Part One, Chapters thirty-three through thirty-five, right? And this is again, like I said, an episode or two ago, where um, uh, Don Quixote, or Don Quixote Cervantes steals the plot of Measure for Measure yep. several years before Measure for Measure was written. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's this little like self-contained novella that like once it starts within the narrative i think it goes straight through to the end um so story within a story kind of thing it's about um so a, a man has a best guy friend marries the woman of his dreams then immediately is suspicious as you know you would do of her cheating on him because yep. she's like beautiful or whatever obviously um so she's obviously cheating on him so he asks and again as you do he asks his guy friend to try to seduce her um so that <laughs> he can know that by her rejection of the guy friend's seduction he can know that she is faithful to him Yep. Which, if it sounds like a good idea, means that you are a moron. If, if it sounds like a good idea, watch the episode of The Office. Um, oh, what's the episode? Uh, where Michael has a, a, a girlfriend who he met in a bar, and uh, he worries because the rest of the office tells him that she's cheating on him. He worries she's cheating on him, and so he asks Dwight to go <laughs> and tail her and find out if she's cheating. And he right. says, all right, you, you you won't like my methods, but here I go. And he goes and meets her at her gym and tries to seduce her. <laughs> and Wow. Yep. That's a pretty deep cut for The Office, I feel like. You're welcome. That's No, but just like The Office doing 
Don Quixote slash Measure for Measure? That's right? impressive. Yep, yep, yep. No. Um. Okay, so... Uh, what Pavel says, so he gives sort of a... He's talking about novellas in, in the particular chapter that I'm talking about, right? Um, and he sort of summarizes this story, um, you know, and, and so I'm just going to quote a little bit of, of Pavel here. He says, when in the end Lothario falls in love with Camilla, so Lothario is the friend, mm -hmm. um, which is where we get the term Lothario, like that's that originates mm. here um, as, as like a lover, mm -hmm. or a, you know as a Lothario, like that, this is the et yeah. etymological patient zero here. Um, yep. Lothario falls in love with Camilla and she yields to his passion. And Selmo, who is the husband of Camilla, um, finds out only when the two of them, fearing the betrayal of a corrupt serpent, corrupt servant, decide to run away together. And Selmo dies of despair, which they're always doing in these like 16th, 17th, 18th century mm -hmm novels and novellas it's just like oh my woman left me i'm gonna die of it despair is dangerous yeah apparently <gasps> um and selmo dies of despair his widow goes into a nunnery lothario finds death on the battlefield so pavel says the enigmatic psyche and the penumbra surrounding it are the subject of the story Explored further by the French novella several decades later, this penumbra would become a central issue in late 19th and 20th century prose. Um, and earlier what Pavel has said about the novella is that it usually explores sort of more um, prosaic, almost surface-level surface themes of like jealousy, betrayal, revenge, mm -hmm. lust. But what Cervantes manages to drill down to here in this little novella, this little embedded story... Um, is something that it's going to take another like two to three hundred years before most authors get there as far as like something to drive their narrative. Mm -hmm. So in other words, Anselmo's like uh, ill-advised curiosity, inappropriate curiosity, that's something that comes out of a weird, mysterious, like unknown almost unfathomable and inexplicable place in his psyche. Yeah. Um, that you can't explain by recourse to one of these like sort of obvious surface level mm -hmm. um, emotions or tensions or whatever. Sure. Um, so I think that that inwardness and that like dr ability to drill down into the psyche mm -hmm. um, Cervantes himself maybe excuse me wouldn't have put it that way but this is like one of the things that makes Don Quixote great is the fact that Cervantes had that like penetration um, to get yeah. that far down into his characters and into his situations. And you could probably make arguments either way about whether these are characters in a modern sense or whether these are sort of um, permutations of Don Quixote himself or Cervantes mm -hmm. himself, you know, sort of that that idea of all the characters as emanating from the central author yeah but either way it's a much like deeper psychological cut than yeah. anything is really able to do until much much later mm -hmm. yeah and i think i would agree with you on that and i think um you know when you asked what makes this great um 
my my first instinct was exactly that passage that I quoted earlier about when Cervantes started to really believe not Cervantes Quixote Don Quixote started to really believe that he was a a knight yeah um which is while he's with the duke and duchess and i think it's uh where 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 i would tend to go is seeing the duke and duchess and their like inwardness yeah. where like you know you see them as kind of these just whimsical sort of like we're just having fun but it comes out of this sort of extreme critical boredom yeah for the two of them and there's something yeah. behind that 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 caused that boredom that causes them to treat Don Quixote this way that isn't fully explored. Yeah. It's almost again, one of those like hidden parts of the psyche. Yep. Not only that it isn't fully explored, that maybe it can't be Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that, or at least that like either Cervantes would just have to spend so much time exploring that. Yeah. He wouldn't be able to do anything else or even that he himself like, doesn't fully grasp it he just knows it's there right that's a really interesting point because like yeah it it i mean i think a large part of it is the like 17th century spanish version of like poor little rich boy syndrome sure like they're so rich so well off and so like everything sort of going their way right that they get bored right but and but like you look at how they interact with one another and i think that's really where it really comes out that when when the duke and duchess interact with one another they hardly talk to each other they're always interacting with other people yeah it's almost like they're bored with one another and to i i, I don't want to say to save their marriage because i don't think that's well, right but like just they need some distraction they need some entertainment and they need to contrive it and push it and that's what unites them yeah and I that's don't know. what keeps them from being just critically bored right and i don't know that to save their marriage is that wrong though sure in the sense that like maybe if they didn't have this kind of stuff they would like just have wild affairs and like cheat on each other because like that's at least in fiction and i think there's a lot of real life analog to this that's where you go in these situations often is just like you just fill that void with sex yeah um and maybe they're smart enough or that they do still love each other enough or that they're just perceptive enough to know that like that's not gonna fill that void but something has to right or else this book just came out at the right time (laughs) for them to notice it yeah but like if it weren't for this book it would be something else almost Mm -hmm. yeah like like it's almost like they have to invent games for themselves to not just sort of sink into a sort of like nihilistic despair or whatever which is itself almost a commentary on the reader yeah just like are you this bored that you need this meaningless thing yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) that i have spent 10 years writing and that is 500 freaking pages long yep and that ethan will spend seven months of his life reading forever because he hates himself (laughs) yep that's definitely all what cervantes was thinking right obviously (laughs) Mm -hmm. um i I guess one one last thought i have on this matter is something yet another thing i got from pavel um and it's something i never heard touched on anywhere else so what pavel says 
is that um, Don Quixote was not meant to be Cervantes' great work. Sure. Um, so um, Pebble starts his book, The Lives of the Novel, by talking about what he calls um, a novel out of ancient Greece that's called mm. The Ethiopian Story. Mm. Um, and it was by an ancient Greek writer, and it was a long work in prose, so, mm -hmm. you know, as close to a definition of the novel as anyone can get. Um, and it was about this this couple that they fall in love, and basically they have various vows and commitments. They can't be together for a while, and they sort of travel across the, like, Hellenistic world, mm. and they end up in Ethiopia, and, like, spoiler alert the woman ends up being the long-lost daughter of the king of Ethiopia, mm. and they, like, end up getting married and uh, becoming the king and queen of Ethiopia, and everything's great, right? Um, but this is an example of what Pavel calls the idealistic novel. Mm. Um, and basically what Pavel says is that at this time in, in Spain and in Europe in general, between sort of the the native cultural stuff and then the influences of the renaissance sort of rebirthing the greek and roman world there were two different major genres and one of them was essentially the idealistic genre the other one was the chivalric genre mm -hmm. and pavel paints this as like a um almost just like a battle to the death mm -hmm. as far as um which genre was superior and he he, he talks about and I'm, you know, summarizing intricate and, like, brilliant scholarly work, but <laughs> um, the the basic understanding that I have is that the idealistic genre was this, this like, often it took the form, story-wise, of, like, two lovers sort of against the world, hmm. right? And the um, it's, it's almost this idea of, like, you have your ideals and the world is going to, like, buffet you mm -hmm. but you have to hold to your ideals right um whereas the chivalric genre was this almost like nietzschean even though obviously nietzsche didn't exist for 300 years mm -hmm. but this nietzschean like uber yes. uber mensch idea yep. of you have your ideals and with your sword in one hand and your hot woman in the other you like hack them onto the world you yep. you you know violently change the world to fit your picture um, and Pavel's contention is that um, Cervantes saw this divide and put himself firmly on the the idealist divide, mm -hmm. uh, or the idealist side of the divide, and that Don Quixote was almost meant to be sort of a clearing of the ground, that um, he, uh, it was basically to like get rid of this one side of the divide that, that Cervantes hated, in order to make room for Cervantes' own um work uh and pavel says hence cervantes dedication and pride in writing persiles and sigismunda a christianized version of the ethiopian story published posthumously in 1617 which cervantes thought of as his best most enduring work mm. so it's interesting to me and it it sort of begs a certain question or set of questions um if Pavel is correct, Don Quixote was the, like, prequel to what was actually going to be the really good work. Right. So does that ring true? And what does it mean that 
this is looks like to me from looking at you the first time you've heard of Persiles and Sigismunda. Yeah. But I bet that it's been 20 years at least since you first heard the term Don Quixote or the title. Don oh Quixote. yeah, absolutely. Well, and like I think part of that uh, is is due to the reader response sort of idea. That, yeah. Like what endures is not necessarily what the author intends. Intends, thinks, plans for, wants. Right. Exactly. So like. Which, which, it's a weird sort of tension that we we give the author credit, and when we realize something or notice something in the in the novel or in the the work of literature, whatever it may be, we attribute that to the author and think they were just that smart. But then right. we go beyond that and say they intended something more, but it didn't work. Well, then right. they weren't as smart as we thought they were. But does that make but them less smart? Exactly, and it's it's some it's it's a it's a weird sort of tension where we have to kind of figure out what what how smart were they? Right, <laughs> quite. Well, and not only do we maybe have to figure that out, we also maybe have to figure out how much that matters. Yeah, yeah, because like it. it was Don Quixote, not Don Quixote, my goodness, I'm mixing up the author and the character I was gonna so say, much. I was gonna say We've when, done that a lot. <laughs> I was going to say before when you did that, and I think at least one time I said Nabokov when I meant Don Quixote. Yeah. Um, but also that that's maybe very telling. Right. Like, that's, not that we did it intentionally, but that no. maybe that's Cervantes' intention. Sure, sure. If not, like, at least... Very, if not Cervantes' intention, very much still in the spirit of Cervantes and Don Quixote. Right, right. But like, just that that Don Quixote is Cervantes' enduring work. That yeah. this is what we know Cervantes for. Right. I don't know what it's like in Spain if they recognize anything else. I suspect it's probably still the same. Just Don Quixote. That's what everybody knows. At least in a self fulfilling way. Right. Because everybody else knows it, and that's maybe what they take pride in. I don't know. Right. That's what I would guess, at least. Right, but like that—that that this is what endures. There's something in this work that, yes, it kind of cleared the way, but maybe not for what Cervantes wanted. Right. It cleared the way for something that he wasn't prepared for. Right. That yeah, that's interesting. Uh, do you have any final thoughts that you are burning to share on Don Quixote? No, not really. Okay, I have. It's I just really just want to read okay. a little bit of Kundera here, um, because as you'll see why, it's very, very relevant to sort of everything we've talked about, and also, you'll see. Okay. Um, this is from Milan Kundera's book, The Curtain, an essay in seven parts, but it's published as a full book. It's from the near the beginning of part one, which is called The Consciousness of Continuity, the section is called Poor Alonzo Quijada. Poor Alonzo Quijada meant to elevate himself into the legendary figure of a knight errant. Instead, for all of literary history, Cervantes succeeded in doing just the opposite. He cast the legendary figure down into the world of prose. Prose, the word signifies not only a non-versified language, it also signifies the concrete, everyday, corporeal nature of life. I'm going to skip some. Mm -hmm. uh, 
But prose is not merely the difficult or vulgar side of life. It is also a certain beauty, till then neglected. The beauty of modest sen sentiments, for instance, the fondness, fondness tinged with familiarity that Sancho feels toward Don Quixote. The Don reproaches him for his garrulous informality, saying that none of the texts on chivalry shows any squire daring to speak to his master in such a tone. Of course not. Sancho's affection is one of the Cervantian discoveries of the new prosaic beauty. A baby could convince him that it's midnight at high noon, and for his simple heart I love him like my own life, and all his eccentricities could not make me leave him, Sancho says. Don Quixote's death is the more moving for being prosaic, that is to say, devoid of all pathos. He has already dictated his will, and then for three days he lingers dying, surrounded by people who love him. Yet, quote, that does not keep the niece from eating, the housekeeper from drinking, or Sancho from being of good cheer. For the fact of inheriting something erases or lessens the sorrow man owes to death. Don Quixote tells Sancho that Homer and Virgil were describing characters not as they were, but rather as they must be to stand as examples of virtue to future generations. Now, Don Quixote himself is far from an example to follow. Characters in novels do not need to be admired for their virtues. They need to be understood, and that is a completely different matter. Epic heroes conquer, or if they are themselves conquered, they retain their grandeur to the last breath. Don Quixote is conquered, and with no grandeur whatever. Hmm. For it is clear immediately, human life as such is a defeat. All we can do in the face of that ineluctable defeat called life is to try to understand it. That is the raison d'etre of the art of the novel. Hmm. Interesting. It strikes me right at the end there of what you just read that he ventures into the language of Nabokov again, uh -huh. of looking at Don Quixote as a series of victories and defeats. Yeah, and yeah, that's where ultimately he comes out and sees it kind of as a draw, I think. If if he looks at the final score in tennis terms, it's right. a draw right. <laughs> for Don Quixote. Nabokov gets very almost um, into the minutiae. Yeah. There's a word I'm looking for, but um, almost atomistic about the victories versus yep, the defeats. Yep, yep, which is an interesting an analysis. But that that's that's an interesting passage from Kundera. Uh-huh. It, um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good way to end it. I thought so. Mm -hmm. So, that said, uh, we must do our ratings. Mm -hmm. We are required by the structure of rules that makes this not just two drunk guys in a room. <laughs> ratings. I guess we'll start. Rate the scotch. What do you think of the scotch just as a scotch? As a scotch. The scotch was very good. Um, I can definitely detect the rum. It's mostly in the sweetness. It's a very, very sweet scotch. Um, but uh, also with a lot of bite, a lot of um, uh, almost citrusy mm. um, sort of bite. Uh, probably and comes also from the rum for that matter. Yeah, probably also the rum. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, no, it's it's an interesting scotch. Um, also very deep, maybe some some dark fruit in there, hmm. um, but uh, not terribly smoky, which is you know that, that's okay by me. I'm okay with that. Uh -huh. um, I like the smokiness, but uh, but a, a scotch without smokiness is okay too. 
Um, so I object with, to that statement, but that's okay. it's your rating. So, um, so with all that in mind, uh, I think it's a solid scotch. I'd definitely drink it again. Not my favorite. I've had better. Um, but this is this is interesting, um, and and I'm interested to try it some more. I'll give it a solid 3.5. Okay. Interesting. Um, it's interesting, and I did say, I want to say right at the beginning of episode one out of this four-part series, um, that I'd had it before ages ago when I knew less about scotch. Mm-hmm. Um, and having it again, knowing more about scotch, is interesting because it it's very different from how it tastes in my memory. Mm. Um, in my memory, it's almost sweeter. Like, oh. I agree with your assessment that it's a sweeter scotch. Um, but there's more, there's actually more smokiness as well as just more oakiness to mm. it than I had remembered, um, which is all good to me. Um, I, when I first, like the first bottle of this particular scotch that I bought for myself, I described it as the donut of scotches in that it's really dangerously easy to drink. Sure. Um, and I think that's probably still true. Yeah. Um, However, it it does it like there's a lot of complexity. You said you said like the dark fruit I didn't get, but the floral stuff I definitely got. Sure. I definitely got the sweetness. And I, I tend to mix up the florals and dark fruits, so Sure. I got the sweetness and even some of like the spices from the rum. Mm-hmm. Um like it almost like so I I bought my first bottle of mezcal recently. Ah. Um and in like pithily describing that i describe it as like scotch kila yeah um and with this i'm tempted to to describe it as like rum scotch uh, (laughs) or like scotch Scotch like it's it's a yeah careful Um, (laughs) it's a it's it's definitely there's like a fusion going on between what i expect from scotch and what i expect from rum Mm-hmm. Um, and it's good. I like it. Uh, I do like. There's a touch of smoke to it, more so than I remembered before. Um, I do miss. Like, I almost want there to be a slight more touch of smoke. Like, almost if you took a Lafroy Tenier and just like tipped like a tenth of an ounce into like t- a two ounce pour of this, that might be like a perfect you know sort of matching for me mm. um but i'm i'm gonna give it like four stars nice. solidly overall um just really solid not like it's a little bit of a of a pricier scotch for what i'm used to buying but like not sorry to have spent the the slightly more on it mm-hmm. um but definitely like definitely scotches that i've liked better but again you know will never be sorry to drink this one sure yeah um so yeah so go ahead and rate the book okay um i'll say buy it uh it's an easy buy it um everybody should read this book um by which i mean both these books um (laughs) it's it it's a classic and for good reason and uh i wish i'd read it a lot sooner because it is just so funny and I didn't realize that it was a funny book and I think if people knew that it was a funny book and went into it expecting it to be funny um, they'd be more more keen on on reading it in the first place 
Um, And buying it also above borrowing it is you read it and then you set it on your shelf because you're going to want to read it again. You might never get around to reading (laughs) it again, but if it's sitting on your shelf, it's going to continually remind you that you want to read it again. And this gets into the theory um, that I read somewhere about uh, having uh, lots of bookshelves Mm. and, and books is if you stare at books and know that there are books there that you haven't read or books that you want to reread it keeps you curious it keeps your brain working it staves off dementia uh and it keeps you humble (laughs) and it's it's a really beneficial thing if you buy this book this huge book that you'll read once maybe never read again but think about reading again you'll stare at it and remind yourself i need to read that again yeah i think i have to agree with everything that you just said good um the only the only uh proviso i would give to that is that it's very interesting to read different translations oh yeah um like i'm really glad i've read the tobias smollett translation i'm really glad i gave you that one as an excuse to buy a different translation (laughs) um i it's it's worth looking into the history of translations because um the two translations that we did i research not necessarily for this show but just overall research very intentionally sure because the smaller translation i from what i understand is still early enough and like pre-victorian enough that it doesn't censor itself um it, it has some of like the free play and even the like freeness and looseness of the translation has been considered a benefit in mm. a lot of excuse me in a lot of ways um, but reading that with its very 18th century prose and then reading a tw- 21st century translation mm-hmm. um, that's much more minimalist in a lot of ways and much more sort of hewing to both the original Spanish and also English as it's actually spoken today um, was really an interesting uh, um, comparison and, mm-hmm. and set of things to, to look at. So... My recommendation, I think, actually is going to be buy two. Sure. Two copies. Different translations. Different translations. Mm-hmm. Look into what you think about the translations. A lot sure. of the like uh, late 18th century and definitely 19th century, even early 20th century translations, as I understand, are very like solemn. That's influenced by that romantic um, reading of the novel as a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um but again, look into the translations, pick two from very different eras, buy both of them, read one of them, have both of them on your shelf, read the other one eventually, or else don't for all the things that Michael just said. <laughs> I'll do um, you one better. I think there why is Spanish. Gamora? <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I think there are a lot of Spanish classes that uh, uh, in like the third year of Spanish or whatever, they read Don Quixote. Oh, that would so, be amazing. Like, just take Spanish for three years and yeah. read Don Quixote in your Spanish class. Now, I will say, one of the two Kundera books I've quoted in the set of episodes, he talks about how novelists throughout the Western world, mostly Europe, but even into America, have read each other in translation and been inspired by each other without knowing the original language that novels were written in so i don't want to say that that's the only thing but also no sounds amazing right yeah yeah 
So buy 11 copies of it, including one in Spanish, and also take Spanish. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. So, Michael, what do you think of the pairing? Uh, as I said, very clever with the uh, the, the uh, Caribbean rum casks. Um, so I, I, I liked that. And I also, the sweetness, I think, feeds into it because when you think scotch, you don't necessarily think a sweet drink. Mm-hmm. Much as when I went into Don Quixote, I wasn't expecting or thinking of a comedic novel. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so I think that sort of pairing where where it's got that unexpected sort of bite that unexpected just like ooh that's sweet yeah um was really neat uh so i i dig it yeah i i would i like the pairing a lot for um similar reasons just because there is a lot going on at the same time like you have five different like you have a sweetness you have a bite you have a slight smokiness you have a floral thing yeah and that's again similar to you know you're you're doing a pastoral but you're also doing some novellas yep. but you're also doing a picaresque novel but you're also you know it's it's similar in taste to like what don quixote is doing thematically and plot wise yep so yeah i would i would say perfect match nice yep i, um, I i'm with you there yep yep all right shall we introduce our new books yes do you want to go first or sure me too mine is in my pillow that's case. a pillow there's a pillowcase. There's a pillowcase. And there is a weird see. lump at the bottom of the pillowcase. Yep. So hopefully your pillow doesn't have cancer. I've got both your copy and my copy. Yes. Oh, okay. So let me see. How's that, how's that going for you? I'm getting it. I'm figuring it out. All right. Here's your copy. Um, now, I went uh, a little bit different here. Here's here's another book um, that I have read before. Okay. Um, and much as uh, Wrinkle in Time, I think Why I said. Why is it behind the pillow still? Because I'm going to tell you in a minute. Okay. Be patient. Be patient. I'm Don't not, be in such a hurry. I'm super in a hurry. When you get it. impatient, it only causes worry. It, it also remember, causes... remember that God is patient too, and think of all the times that others had to wait for you. Wow, like being in Sunday school, <laughs> hating the woman I first heard. <laughs> that was a song my mother used to sing to me. Uh, uh, so as I as I described um, A Wrinkle in Time as formative, yeah. this is another book that was kind of formative for me. Um, I think I've read it three times, um, uh, including once when, um, yeah, I'll share this story now. I read it in high school, my freshman year of high school, and I was in a really boring geometry class because I already knew everything they were teaching me. Right. Um, And so I got so bored, I would just sit and read. And it convinced me at one point, I was reading this book and I got so into it, I wound up standing up in the middle of class and walking out of the room, almost all the way out of the room before my teacher asked me what I was doing, and I realized, oh, you can see me. Because this book is called Things Not Seen okay. by Andrew Clements, uh, famously the author of Frindle. I don't know that book. You don't know that book? Okay, no. that's all right. Um, he's, uh, it's a YA novel, Things Not Seen. This is going to be a really quick read, um, yeah. but it's about a boy who turns invisible inexplicably. It okay. does wind up being explained how he turns invisible, which is a thing we can discuss. Um, when we get to that point, but um, it's written in first person, uh, present tense, which is a thing that I didn't like initially when I read it, but it warmed up. I, I usually up to hate it. that, but if someone does it well, I and I, and get I think really Andrew Clements does it well. Andrew Clements is a, is um, 
an interesting author. I haven't read a ton by him, but yeah. I really liked this book. Um, and so I'm interested to come back to it now yeah. that it's been several years. I want to say it's about seven or eight years since my last reading of this book. So um, we'll see how I still feel about it now. But yeah. yeah. Cool. There you go. All right. Are you ready for mine? Yep. So this is a book I have not read. And yeah. as far as I know, you have not read. Yeah. It is called Station Eleven. All right. Um, it's by Emily St. John Mandel, or Sinjin Mandel, if you follow the British pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Now, I do. as I understand, this is a book in which a devastating flu pandemic has basically wiped out civilization. Twenty years later, the main character of this book is part of an acting troupe um, hmm. who goes from, like, the, you know, remaining sort of towns, you know, struggling against the end of civilization, um, performing Shakespeare, among hmm. other things. Uh, uh, just reading from the back, they call themselves the Traveling Symphony, and they have de dedicated themselves to keeping the rem remnants of art and humanity alive. Hmm. So this book... When it came out, it's fairly recent, I want to say. I'm trying to quickly find... So, 2014. Okay. Um, it came out, and it was a pretty big hit pretty much immediately. Um, and I want to say, especially among the sort of, like, art, theater, writing sort of nerds that I tend to be friends with. But, I mean, I think it won... Um, there's a prize thing on the front of your copy. Yeah, it won the national. It was a finalist for the National Book Award. Oh. Um, I think it, you know, was a bestseller on various lists and things like that. So, um, you know, it was a pretty big deal at least at the time. And the premise intrigued me, and I've been meaning to read it literally since then. And uh, my book list. My to-read list has about a four-year delay on it, and here we are. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's that's uh, my book for next time. Mm-hmm. I dig it. So, yeah. All right. Looking forward to it. All right, gentle listener, you now know our next two books. You have Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel and Things Not Seen by Andrew Clements. Um, so, please... Feel free to read along. Consider this your warning. I don't know what mm -hmm. warning we'll give them before this episode is out, but <laughs> here we are. So, read along. Give us your feedback. Talk about these books. Talk about Don Quixote. Talk about whatever. Uh, go to the contact section of tapestryradio.org. Helps us if you put Scotch Talk in the subject line. Mm -hmm. um, tweet us at, at @roomwithscotch on on the Twitter, uh, go to the Tapestry Radio Tap House on Facebook. If you want your homework assignment to appear on one of our English homework specials, um, we don't promise to do it well. We don't condone plagiarism, but if you think it would be funny to see your homework done at sort of an F slash D minus, but probably F level, <laughs> um, go to our forum at tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. We'll do our best. We'll make it fun. We will have you fail if you plagiarize us. Correct. 
So if you like this podcast, check out our other shows at the Tapestry Radio Network. Um, shows like Intermission, our audio drama podcast, Pokemon Rollout, our Pokemon playing RPG podcast. <laughs> um, please rate and, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, wherever you get your podcasts. Check out my webcomic at pinporterdetective.com. Mm-hmm. That's Pinporter Girl Detective. She is a girl detective, and also there are fairies in her small town, Wisconsin life. It's a good, it's a good uh, web comic that is well drawn, and also I write it. <laughs> um, anything you want to promote, Michael? That I've forgotten? Nope. Cool. I don't think so. Excellent. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> you know, writing a sermon every week, but other right. than that. Uh, well, that said, till next time, gentle listener. Just remember, it's our party, and we will create the fiction of this world if we want to. Yes, we will. Or no, we won't. We love you. record anything worthwhile. <laughs> I mean, that has never been a proposal. <laughs> are you too cold at all, or are you good? I'm good. Okay. Because I'm not too cold, but, like, I don't get too cold until I'm actively dressed like this and, like, snow is on me. So if you get too cold, let me know. I can take it. Nope. I will just sure? become a Sicilian monk named Moldonio. Moldonio? Huh? That's my name. <laughs> Where'd you come up with that name? I made them. Okay. <laughs> One part mold and another part onio. <laughs> oh, I hate that. <laughs> I'm not laughing at that, but I hate it so much. Oh my goodness. Do you have any? What? Goodness. Well, I don't anymore. Oh, I see. Yeah. I don't see your black armband or anything inside of the morning. I'm, well, this isn't the Victorian era, Michael. Oh, yeah. oh, I see. Yeah, you're the one I guess being you ridiculous can now. Mourn in I'm whatever how fashion I want you want. To. Yeah, these kids these days <laughs> not using black armbands to mourn like their parents did and mm-hmm. their parents did. Oh, I'm gonna go get the waters. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> to give us both the two identical water glasses that we have <laughs> because she thinks she's funny. <laughs> Alright. Are you ready? Yeah, I sure. <laughs> oh, that's confidence inspiring. Yep. Oh.
Hello, gentle listener. We just wanted to take a break here at the bottom of the episode from ending the episode and just talk a little bit more about our Patreon. Uh, yeah. The main point of our Patreon page is, of course, to give us money, but as with Please, all things money. in this extremely broken capitalist system, you can't just ask people for money, so we're giving you some some uh, things back. Mm-hmm. You're not buying them. They're rewards for the They're... money that you give us. Yeah, which is definitely not what buying is. Nope. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so, uh, if you go over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash roomwithscotch, there's also a, a link mm-hmm. on our website, you can yep. see all the tiers. We just wanted to highlight a couple things. Um, mm-hmm. If you just give us $1 per month, just a dollar. One dollar. You get one dollar going once, going twice. Sold for one dollar. Except not sold. You're donating it, and we're giving you a reward. And also, it's not the only thing. So really, this metaphor is falling apart around us quickly. Oh crap! Uh, All right, one dollar. You get for a dollar. You get access to the secret archives, um, yes. which contains tons of bonus audio from Michael and Ethan. Um, I have at least three different sort of bonus things up there currently to our right. analyses of, of various uh, shorter pieces. Um, there's a file of me reading the short story that I analyzed in a different file. Um, mm-hmm. And the plan is to expand. By the time this goes up, there will be more of me on there as well. Excellent yes. specificity there. And there's, there's also content from uh, some of the other Tapestry shows as well that you can get access to just by donating only to this show. So yeah. isn't that great? Yeah. So access to the Secret Archives at just a dollar. For $3 per month, you get to pick an issue $3. of Tapestry Wonder Tales and Trivialities, which is a magazine that we produced three issues of several, several years ago that's filled with stories, yep. poems... Um, visual stuff, uh, just sort funny of little things, wondrous things, um, and trivialities. And they're, they, you know, we we've never been timely, so therefore, Tapestry nope. Magazine is timely. So, anytime that you donate, exactly. you get your copy. You should, you know, be able to revel in the stories referencing, you know, literary works from hundreds of years ago and other extremely yep. timely, relevant things. Absolutely. It's exactly what every coffee table needs. Um, yes. Uh, at $20 or more per month. Um, now, I've mm-hmm. skipped a few tiers, so you'll have to just go to the Patreon to... Uh, look at all the things you can yeah, get. Yeah, look at all of them. Uh, at $20 or more per month, you get a personal mini-sode just for mm-hmm. you. If you donate 20 if you pledge at the $20 or more per month level, we will work with you... Um, to pick a book, short story, poem, or other input. Maybe you want us to watch a movie or read a, read a yeah. graphic novel. Or um, sure. We will do that. It will be dedicated for, to you. Um, mm-hmm. We'll do our best to personalize it for you. Um, and you yourself will become a part of Tapestry Lore. Yeah. Imagine um, that. You will be immortalized. Now... We do have one tier. Like I said, we have several tiers between three and twenty dollars. Go to the yep. Patreon and look at that. Michael, do you want to talk about our last tier, our highest tier? Yes, our for transcendent our tier, as it were, transcendent tier. Yeah, that's that's what we'll call it, the transcendent tier. If you yes. love this show so much 
that you would like to donate $1,000 or more per month, if you'd like to uh, pledge that amount, $1,000 or more, that gets you to the transcendent tier, uh, you get to be basically a, a lit professor for us. You assign us a book to read and an essay to write about it. Ethan and I will each write an essay uh, providing a self-published hard copy as well as a digital copy of that essay in the secret section. Uh, so you get to basically turn us into your literary slaves and make us read a book, write an essay, and give it to you in hard copy and publish it on the secret section and whatever it, whatever it can be. Let your imagination go wild if you decide to do this. Um, yeah, we will write whatever you want. <laughs> Um, and some people might say it's a, it's a little bit arrogant to uh, have a thousand dollars here, but you know, what's the worst <laughs> that can happen? We don't get a thousand dollars or more per month. We already don't have a thousand dollars or more per month, so like, whatever. We're not man. losing anything. <laughs> yeah, don't add us. Don't yeah. add us. Back off. All right. Back off, except to give us money. Yeah, thank you. Please. Thank you. So thank yeah, you once guys. again, that's at uh, patreoncom roomwithscotch. Check it out and donate whatever you feel comfortable donating. Whatever is in your heart and also <laughs> whatever things you want to get out of it. Yep. But you're not buying uh, it. Thank you're you. donating and we're giving you a reward. It's very different. Thank you. We love you. Thank you. We love you. Bye. Thank you. We love you very much. Bye-bye. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From our fancy to yours.